Welcome to the Recovering from Religion podcast. New theme song, new year, still the same vibrant international community for those who have questions or doubts about their faith. I'm your host, Tim Rimel, along with my co-host, Mr. Bill Prickett. Hey, Bill. Hey, Tim. How's it going? And Happy New Year. Happy New Year's, Bill. How was your New Year? It was nice. I mean, this is, I think, the 15th or 16th year in a row that I slept through the ball falling in Times Square. So I'm batting a thousand. It's good to have gold, Bill. (laughs) I've started off the year again by having missed the New Year roll in. I'm okay with that. All right. Did you make any of your New Year's resolutions? You know, I don't do New Year's resolutions. I'm one of those odd people that don't do it. I have a a tradition that I follow that I've been following, I think, since high school, where I adopt a word for the new year. I kind of spend some time during November and December thinking about what word I would like to spend my time thinking about, pondering, meditating, seeking to incorporate into my life for the new year. And so for years now, I've done that. And that's kind of my new year tradition. You know what? That's a hell of a lot easier than going to the gym. I really think that that's probably why I did it, because I just... I know that I'm a very goal-oriented person. If I put things on my to-do list and they pop up, then I find my chest tightening and and, and getting you know getting a little tense because I see these to-do lists. So I think I would be okay with resolutions. And I was raised in a corporate and nonprofit world where we set goals and and then all the things we had to do to meet the goals. But this process for me of my word of the year has has always been kind of something that I enjoy and it's always worked for me and I find it's very productive. Yeah, you can't really mess that up. No, no, it's just it's kind of self-improvement and I think by me concentrating on self-improvement I help other people with their new year's resolutions who want me to be better. Do you have like a, a goal of memorizing the dictionary and just using that in everyday language or you know, I I think that might be a, a a good one to consider, but no, that's not usually. <laughs> it, it's usually a word that is something that I would like to see become a reality in my life for the new year. For example, I think it was six or seven years ago, I had just recently gotten a cancer diagnosis, and I was going into treatments. And my life was really changing. I mean, there was a lot going on. And I was leaving my career, my job. And I knew that a lot was going to be different in the new year. And so the word that I adopted that year was modulation, just because I knew that I was just going to have to be ready to change, to adapt, to flow. And then there was that musical connotation to it, just kind of go with the music. 
Well, I think I'm going to adopt the word thin and see, <laughs> and see how that works. I wish you all the best in that, brother. <laughs> Thank you. I, I see no reason why that wouldn't work. I can't think of any right off the top of my head. Yeah. On this episode, then, we have Gail and Daryl, who are our executive director and founder of Recovering from Religion. So this is going to be a lot of fun today. Yes, I, I'm, I'm very excited about this one. We were, we've been trying to plan this since we began the podcast uh, several months ago. We've wanted to have them on and getting it scheduled. And so we thought, well, after the holidays, let's start the new year off by talking to the two leaders of the organization, kind of get some information, background, plans and goals. I thought that would be an exciting way to start the new year off together. Agreed. Gail and Daryl, who, who are on our call right now, welcome to the show. We're very happy to have you guys here and looking forward to learning about your lives and learning about your involvement with Recovering from Religion and just to, to understand why you do what you do. Well, hi, fellas. Happy New Year. Happy New Year, Gail. Yeah, thanks for having us on. I was just listening to Bill and thinking that if I had adopted that, I would have a vocabulary of about 68 words. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's better than the vocabulary word of the day toilet paper that somebody gave me one year for Christmas. <laughs> but right. Bill, you never shared what your word for 2019 is. I usually don't share my words. Oh. Um, it is something that is very personal for me for that year. And so it's not usually for public consumption. Okay. I right. got completely understood. Okay. Yeah, I, I've heard his language. You really don't want to know that word. <laughs> Maybe that's it. <laughs> yeah. My mother may be listening, and you know how she is about profanity. <laughs> yeah, she doesn't care for that at all. <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> Daryl, I'm just, i curious. You know, you started recovering from religion what, 10 years ago, I think it was. Exactly, 10 years yeah. ago. Yeah. So why? Why did you do that? I published my book, The God Virus, and within weeks, I was getting, I was getting overwhelmed with requests for help, and I couldn't possibly help everybody, so I decided... I'm going to start a little group. And that little group, uh, the very first time I did it, we had 11 people show up in the back room of an IHOP. And I only knew one of the other people in those 11, that group of 11. And at the end of, I think we were in there for almost three hours, the manager was kicking us out because they were closing the restaurant. So I realized at that moment time, there, I have a tiger by the tail. This is This is something people really, really need. I spoke almost not at all during that meeting. I just let people talk and I moderated the talk. But wow, it was powerful to see it. And then the next time I did, it was just as powerful. I didn't realize that the group had started out, the organization had started out as an actual physical meeting. That's interesting. Yeah, right. And I just put it up on Meetup like with a, a week's advance notice and had 11 people show up. I mean, it was, it was, and it was just amazing to hear them tell their stories. I only asked two questions. How did, how did religion hurt you and how have you benefited from leaving? Three hours later, they're kicking us out. Tell a little bit about some of your training and background. Well, I was raised in a fairly fundamentalist, independent Christian church. Grandfather was a country church minister. Grandfather was elder. Everybody in my family was missionaries or preachers or elders and I grew up with that and thought I would probably be some kind of a minister or preacher myself someday and wanted to help people. So I went to college and college kind of helped me get a little bit more perspective when I started 
studying anthropology and sociology, and at the same time had taken a job as a youth minister in a church. And uh, I had a little problem occasionally when I wanted to teach evolution in Sunday school class, but they let me slide a little bit that but way back when they weren't quite as uh, controversial as it seems to have gotten. So that was my background. And then I went on into um, seminary at Scarrett College for Christian Workers in Nashville, Tennessee, and got my master's degree. And by the end of a master's degree, I figured out it was all pretty much bullshit. So I moved on and uh, went back to get my doctorate in psychology. Um, Is that the question? Does that answer any questions? Yes, yes, because I did kind of want some of your educational background so that uh, people knew that that you you do know what you're talking about when you talk about some of these some of these areas and and I I, I appreciate your training and uh, and that's why I really wanted to bring it in. You have a master's in religion and I you know that was my field of study as well, so I wanted to bring that in. I don't have the bachelor's in sociology or anthropology or a doctorate in psychology, but um, I I think that's important for us to bring out here. Yeah. Well, I think well, you do. You do know a new word every year, Bill. So don't I do a everything. new word every year, yeah. and so I'm I'm well on my way to a doctorate. You are. <laughs> well, as I was practicing, and I my early career was all in clinical psychology. I having people in my office, individuals and couples, I, it was really apparent over the first ten years of my career just how much religion was involved in people's marriages and sex lives and happiness and depression, and that. That really led me to where I ultimately wrote the book, The God Virus, because I saw so many people suffering as a result of being brainwashed with religious ideas about their bodies and about their culture, about their family. But that was not in my mind when I was a psychologist. I I was just being like most people, helping, trying to help folks. Yeah. Being from the South, you said you were from Tennessee. No, no, Do th- I, no, no, don't, don't put that on me. I'm from. Oh, okay. I thought I, I, thought I heard that. No. Hey. No. I think Gail just left. Gail, Gail left, I know. Gail, Gail is from Tennessee. So well, please forgive me, Daryl. What did you say? Yeah, well, I was raised in the South, but it was the South of Kansas in Wichita. South Kansas, okay. Yeah. Well, I was raised in Alabama. We don't call that the South. <laughs> yeah, well, we don't either, but <laughs> <laughs> I have a, a, a picture of John Brown hanging in my uh, living room. So that, that will tell you if you if you know your Southern Civil War history, where okay. my, my sympathies probably lie. So. Well, one of my roommates in college was a direct descendant of Robert E. Lee. So. Oh. <laughs> when I was in seminary, I went up to have a beer with a, well, I didn't drink, but I went up to have a Coke or something with this guy from Alabama. We got to talking and he said, uh, you're from Kansas. Isn't that where that crazy guy's from? I said, I don't know what you're talking about. Crazy guy. Can't remember by in the news. You know, the crazy guy, the guy that started the Civil War. And I said, you mean John Brown? said, yeah, the crazy guy, the start of the Civil War. Once we got that resolved, he never spoke to me again. Sorry <laughs> about that friendship. <laughs> when you say crazy guys in the South, that just covers such a broad spectrum. It does. Yeah, and I'm curious how long and what and how long it took you to end that conversation. What it, what it, what word did you use? <laughs> I remember I was only like 23 years old. That's a long time ago. 
But John Brown's, <laughs> Brown's always been a hero of mine. He's the hero of Kansas because he practically founded the state of Kansas, his, historically speaking. He was very instrumental in how in keeping us from becoming a slave state. That was very important. Gail, I want to hear from you too. I know you you lived in Tennessee for thirty years, but what's what was your background? My pedigree, my religious background, is uh, Southern Baptist, and I was immersed in it. We were that family that was at the church every time the doors were open. And and although I started to stick my big toe into reason and rationality in college, I quickly drew it back. I, I think we forget that in the process and in the journey through, there's a scary portion of doubting and questioning faith. And so I hit that point, pulled back, and then got back on the conventional track and got married and had a, a house full of children and then became that family all over again where we were in the church every time the doors were open. We were in leadership positions. And I had four children very close together. And so when I say my four children all were teenagers at the same time, they were all teenagers at the same time. And when they hit that threshold, they came to me with what I termed and with what I expected them to, which is normal Christian youth group teenager questions. You know, they question the morality of the Bible. They question the academics of the Bible. There, I, I knew that was coming, and I validated that, and I said, let's look for answers together. And so the process was we started what I call inside the bubble first. We began to ask questions of our youth minister and our pastor and Sunday school teachers, and the children and I would come back together and talk about what we had learned. And and when we asked at that level, of course, religion has a response to all of those things. It has a response to the 6,000-year-old earth and the flood and the animals on the boat and all those things. And so they were answers, but they weren't very satisfying. And about the same time, as I said, my children were becoming teenagers. They were starting high school. They were beginning to be exposed to a few more people that were different than they were, that believed a little bit differently. We were in the South, and so it wasn't very wide open, but it certainly cracked into them being able to examine their beliefs. So then we began to look for answers to our questions outside the bubble. And we began to study history and anthropology and sociology and psychology. And of course, once you do that, it, everything makes a whole lot more sense. You're not trying to defend uh, an unreasonable, indefensible system. And so the children, one by one, began to lose confidence, shall we say, in their belief system. And so they began to leave religion. They were not as vested in it as I was. They're teenagers. And it was easier, much easier for them to walk away. And as they walked away, and as they, this was as they were going through high school, and they began to leave one by one to start their lives and go to college until, until me at the tail end of it, I'm left alone. They've launched, and they have all left religion. And I I was stuck because they were the only other people I knew that had decided to leave religion. And so I no longer had confidence in my beliefs, but I was very closeted and I had no friends. My entire support community was the religious community, was from my church. And so I stayed probably a year longer than I should have faking it, you know, trying to say I can do this. I knew that my marriage would be at risk if I were to come out. I knew that all of my network would fall apart. It was, it was, I knew that it would hurt my family. There were a bunch of reasons why I tried to conform for a while. And when I could no longer do that, and I was unhappy and miserable, and I was, it was just a hard, dark time for me. And then I 
came out and I decided this is this is who I am and everybody who loves me needs to know this is my position and so a- after that hard time and and there were still hard times to come because I was correct about my marriage not being able to sustain that so I had to restart my life and I did that and then I chose that opportunity to go back to law school and got my law degree and now on the backside of it it's just awesome and wonderful and I try to be careful with the work that we do at Recovering from Religion, I want to be realistic about life and its challenges, but I will always say it is so much better on this side. There's so much more light and air and space on this side. And so that's, in a nutshell, the story of my progression through religion. For both of you, you came out at a great cost. Daryl, I know you and I had talked before where you had a business and things kind of fell apart after that. And then, Gail, you're in the South. Can you, you guys explain what that was like to lose your support system and to go through that process? Obviously, the biggest one was that it was my marriage wasn't able to sustain that change. And I lost you know, all the friends I had in my social network. It was extremely painful. The highest cost short of, my, of losing my marriage was telling my my 70-year-old parents, and it was, they were devastated. They're still religious people, and we have come, it's been 10 years now, and we've come to a much more comfortable place, but at the time, it's just simply devastating. And this far removed from it, you know, I, I, I can look back on it and I'll go, oh boy, that was a hard time, that was a dark time. But if I dig a little bit deeper and I put myself back in those memories, it was probably the most painful thing that I went through because I was causing so much pain to people who loved me, not the personal pain. The personal pain, you know, you can sustain, you can you can tough it out, whatever. But when you hurt someone that you love, I think the pain sometimes is even greater. And it was it was a it was such a difficult thing. And so it's and it was that experience that led me to want to help other folks who were who were experiencing the same the same thing. And that's that's why my association with recovering from religion. And what was your experience, Daryl? Well, I had a much easier landing than Gail, and I'm I'm glad I didn't have to go through that. But I, I mine wasn't as traumatic. When I got divorced, it made a big difference in my life. I could no longer I no longer had to pretend. I stuck with religion as a very liberal religionist for many years after I got out of seminary, and I even I even preached a little bit. Uh, I have the singular distinction of having never been asked to go back to a church and preach to twice. <laughs> my, my sermons were all well i never preached uh full-time i preached part-time as a substitute preacher for you know ministers or on vacation stuff and they never asked me to come back because my, my sermons were way too liberal for northeastern missouri and north uh northwestern missouri and northeastern kansas but when i got divorced i started dating shortly after that and uh i met this gal i was pretty getting kind of serious with her and my parents didn't know it was uh, at that time i would I called myself an agnostic. I was too much of a coward to call myself an atheist at the time. So, but anyway, uh, my my mom said, "Well, I, I hear you're dating a nice girl. I hope she's a good Christian girl." And I told mom, "If she's a good Christian girl, I'm running as fast as I can." And that's how I came out to my parents. Um, of course, I'm 40 years old at the time, so it's I had a really good relationship with my parents. They raised four boys, no girls in our family, four boys, and not one of us have voluntarily darkened the door of a church, and it's about 1985. So I think my parents finally figured out their religion wasn't working on any of their kids. So I I didn't really lose a support group. Uh, I was the support group for my parents, as was my second brother. 
So to the day my parents died, I had a good relationship with them, even though they knew I was an atheist. Now, as time went by and I became more out as an, as an atheist, that's when I hit the wall, so to speak, and had consequences. I kept it real quiet in my public life. I had a very high-profile public life as an organizational psychologist working with Fortune 500 in all companies. But the day I published The God Virus, um, people stopped responding to my phone calls and my emails, and my business went down pretty fast. Thankfully, I was close to retirement, and uh, the book sales of The God Virus almost made up for the income loss that I had from losing, basically losing the business. But it was very disappointing that people I'd had, in some cases, 20-year relationships with just decided, I don't want to do business with you anymore because you're an atheist, <laughs> even though they didn't know I was an atheist for the first 19 years uh, of that relationship. And it seemed to be a deal breaker for them. I don't know how my religious preferences impact our business relationship, but it evidently did in their mind. Gail, I'm, so I'm curious, living in Tennessee, it's clearly a very religious place. Uh -huh. What happened when you started coming out to your friends? Were you completely ostracized? Did you do it slowly? What was the response that you were getting? Um, the process, the internal process was much more protracted for me. I, I was struggling with it for a long time before I actually made the decision, before I came to my personal conclusion that I just don't believe this anymore. When I made the announcement, I told my husband and I left church and the children knew the loss of the support was instant. It was comprehensive and instant. My friends at church, I had one or two reach out to me in private messages, leaving me a voicemail, a phone call or two, and then it was over. And 10 years later, there are some that I still haven't heard from. And I stayed in my same town. <laughs> you know, I, I was the same person. I was involved in other things in my community. Our kids played, so you know, the, the community within which my kids had played soccer. I, and yet those, it dried up. So that was a surprise to me. But at the time and now, now I know that's a phenomenon. It's, it's frightening for people. You know, it causes them anxiety because if they've had any kind of doubts and now someone has acted on it. And so I understand what's going on. But at the time, you know, it was just, it was more, it was just more loss and more devastation. So when when I talk about how good it is on this side, you do have to go through that dark, narrow tunnel. And I think I can say that so much of what we see in terms of depression and social isolation is experienced by people when they go through this process. A lot of the reason for the difficulty is because they just don't have the tools to deal with that kind of thing in their life. And frankly, religion prevents you from learning those tools, actively prevents you. Many religions won't even encourage you to go see a counselor. Or if you do, you have to go see a Christian counselor send you back to church. My theory is it takes probably three to five years minimum for most people to get through the grieving process. But I think if they've got somebody to help them that knows what they're doing or that they trust, you could probably cut that in half for a lot of people. I don't know what you think about that, Gail. That's just my pet 
theory? I, I second that. I second that. And I think we don't do enough examination of that. I think we need to acknowledge that. And I think that we need to help people understand that the decision or the moment whenever you go, okay, I don't think I believe this anymore. That may be a moment. Everything else is a process. All of the work done is a process after that. I think you know, something Gail said about the sense of community that people have when they are in a very religious culture, like I grew up in, in the deep South, the church was so ingrained into our lives. And I wasn't raised in church, but church was still kind of everywhere in our life. As Gail was talking about the thought of leaving that, walking away from it, those are your friends, those are your peers, that's who your kids hang out with and all of that. I know in the the years that I've worked with, with gay and lesbian kids and their parents, the parents sometimes will be in churches that teach stuff that is so detrimental to their kids and they have a difficulty saying, well, I'm going to walk away because it's still this sense, this tight knit sense of community for them. I want to say something else about that. When you are inside religion, or it was my experience that inside religion, there's such a we all know what the persecution complex is inside of religion, partic- particular in Christianity. You have a sensation. I had the sensation that I was part of a very small, fortunate group of people who knew, who had the light, who had the key, who knew the truth, and that everybody else in my little small southern town were heathens. You know, we. I remember. I can't tell you how many funerals I went to where the pastor would say something like. Well, we grieve differently than the rest of the world. If a Christian had died, we grieve differently than the rest of the world. And so you have this sensation that there are very few Christians, even in a small town, that it's an ex- it's not that it was an exclusive group, but that everybody else around us was was not a believer. And so when I was going through my questioning and then came out and became not a believer anymore, what I found was exactly the opposite, was that religion was so ubiquitous. And I had I had not paid attention to that because I was immersed in it. So yeah, it's everywhere because yeah, it's religion. And then when you get on the other side of it and you reflect back and you look in and you find, no, quite the opposite. Everything is centered around religion. Everybody is religious. And so I thought when I came out, I had this idea when I came out and and when I tell people that I'm no longer a believer, now I'm going to be a member of this big pagan heathen community that's all out there in my small southern town. And what a joke. There was nobody. I don't know why. It wasn't reasonable. I shouldn't have believed that. That's another thing that religion does to you. You know, it skews your perspective. And so it came as a surprise to me that, oh no, actually the opposite is true. Everybody is some variation of some type of religious, and it took time and searching for me to find people who who were free thinkers, who, you know, who, who didn't believe in religion. What would either of you say to someone who is just at that place where they are now thinking maybe this isn't true? Where should they start? What, what is the process of of starting to walk through the mire of those belief systems and taking things apart? I would say most of our clients have already started that process long before they find us. They got on YouTube, they watched a Richard Dawkins or Sam Harris debate or something like that, that pushed them a little farther. We have ex-Mormons who started doing the research within their bubble, kind of like Gail said earlier, they started looking at the contradictions right 
in the middle of the Mormon documents. And then they, they, you know, Mormons are told never, never, never look outside at outside stuff. Scientologists are told the same thing. And Jehovah's Witnesses, all these groups say, don't ever look at stuff outside of our little bubble. Well, one day they, they sinned and looked at something outside their bubble. And that led them to us. But they're well on their way a lot of times when they, when they come to us. We're going to break for just a minute and tell you more about Recovering from Religion. Recovering from Religion is funded by those who believe in what we do. We invite you to support us with a monthly or one-time donation. Go to our website, recoveringfromreligion.org, and click on the Donate button for instructions. On the website, you'll also find an extensive database of resources, including links, articles, and videos. We offer 24-hour phone and chat line support, along with the links to meetup groups in 20 communities around the U.S. With our Secular Therapy Project, we can connect you with a professional who offers evidence-based, non-religious treatment. Our partner therapists understand the complexities of rethinking or leaving your faith. Finally, Recovering from Religion is an entirely volunteer-run organization. If you're interested in being a volunteer with us, please visit recoveringfromreligion.org and look for the Volunteer tab. Gail, Daryl told us how he started the organization. How did you get involved with Recovering from Religion? I love that question. When I first transitioned away from religion and I was in my isolated small town southern area, I could not wait to talk to other people who didn't believe the same way that I did, to the point that in 2011, I took my car and drove to Des Moines, Iowa, because that's where the American Atheist Convention happened to be that year. I, I just, I, I registered for the convention and just took off and went because I couldn't wait to talk to people about it. And one of the first folks I met when I walked in the door there was Dr. Daryl Ray. And he was, at that time, he was on um, his, Daryl, you may have to correct me. I don't know if it was God Virus or God, a Sex and God book that you had you were kind of new from, I don't know, in 2011. And uh, Daryl and I spent some time talking and uh, he had just, of course, Recovering from Religion was founded in 2009. So he wasn't very far off of the founding idea of that. So he shared a little bit of the concept with me. Little did I know that years later, (laughs) it would become as significant as it was. But it Recovering from religion and its mission of providing hope, healing, support, and community to folks who are doubting and leaving their faith is so complimentary to my own experience. It was so easy for me to want to be a part of this organization. Number one, we we offer opportunities for everybody along the spectrum to help everybody as they make their journey, but also for volunteers. You know, we hear the word armchair activism, and and sometimes we don't know exactly how to plug in. And the the, the opportunities we have for volunteers to be able to come in is, is so vast, whether they serve as a phone agent or a chat agent or a community leader or a support group leader. All of that just aligned so closely with my own personal experience. My transition away from religion was so seismic for me that I have such a, in religion we used to say, I I have such a heart for that ministry. (laughs) 
<laughs> but I have such a, I'm so drawn. I have such, um, I'm, it's such a compelling piece of the community for me to be able to be a part of it. It was, there was no question that I wanted to be part of this. And so, so over time, that's what drew me to it. And and then the rest, as they say, is history. I've been the executive director for about three years, and it's been one of the most gratifying experiences to be able to lead this organization and to work with the the, the caliber and quality of volunteers that we do to help folks along on their journey. And I want to talk to you about your role as executive director, but you made a statement about people coming to Recovering from Religion website all along the spectrum of asking questions. And, and I want you to speak to that because Absolutely. I don't want and, anybody and who is listening to I'm, us. I'm sorry, go ahead. That's all right. I don't want anybody to who is listening to us to think, well, I'm, I'm not an atheist or I don't know what I am or I don't understand to feel uncomfortable calling or checking out no matter where they are, as you said, along that spectrum. One of the things that we try so carefully to do, Bill, when when I talk about what the helpline is, and we refer to the helpline, our you know our ability to help folks with chats or calls or being part of our community, one of the things I try to say is it's as important to me for you to know what it isn't as what it is, because what it isn't, it is not a deconversion process. That's not what we do. Number one, in a practical sense, we market ourselves to the believing community and we we are zealously protective of our reputation. We don't want people to think, oh, don't call those people. They'll just talk you right out of your faith. Well, we absolutely don't want to do that. That's what religion does is religion tells you how and what to think. And we don't want to do that. We want to teach you critical thinking skills. We want to provide resources if you have questions. And so we are careful that we. it is not a deconversion process. That's one of our cardinal rules for our trained volunteers is to, this is not our job to do. Our job is to offer resources. Our job is to listen in a non-judgmental way to the things that they're struggling with. These are valid things they're struggling with. And we we want to provide help for that, not tell you how to think. And so when we say wherever on the spectrum you may be, you're welcome. You're welcome to come in. You're welcome to ask questions. We've had calls in the past from someone who has been, let's say they've been out of religion, so to speak, for a number of years, and maybe they've lost a loved one. And all of a sudden, they're having to deal with, again, with some of these concepts that that surface about an afterlife and about grieving without the idea of an afterlife that or we may get somebody at the very beginning when, as I describe it, when the ground just becomes a little soft beneath their feet in these foundational principles that they think they've believed all of their lives. And so everyone is welcome to come and reach out and ask their questions and get a little bit of help and get a little bit of compassion and find some resources. And that's what we see as our as our mission for recovering from religion. Darrell, let me ask you, as a psychologist, when you're working with people who are exiting a religion or at least rethinking their religion, what are the top issues that you see that they talk about? We see a, a lot of death neurosis, and it comes in the form of terrifying fear of hell. Almost all Christian religions and almost all Islamic religions both have a lot of emphasis on health and the afterlife. So dealing with that's a pretty common, I would say, Gail, jump in here if you've got any feeling about it. Probably upwards to half of the people we talk to are dealing in some way, shape, or form with with fear of hell or dealing with issues around, well, I can't quite wrap my head around the fact that 
I don't go anywhere when I die or something like that. Now, we are not here to tell you what happens after you die. We're not here to tell you there's no hell. We don't get into that, as Gail said. What we simply do is ask questions, send you towards resources, and provide help, uh, support for you as you think through it for yourself. The most important thing is when a person calls or chats in with us, that they are engaging their own brain, and we're not here to tell them what how they should think. We just ask questions. A lot of times, just simply ask questions based on what you tell us. And it probably it probably won't come as a surprise to either of you that at the top of the list of reasons that people come to us are the fractured relationships. And so we have, um, we've talked a little bit about the chat line and about the telephone hotline. We also have an online community because that's a place where our clients can come in and actually they build relationships with one another. They self-select which which communities they choose to belong and, and where they want to have conversation. And so much of that conversation is about coming out and how do we deal with, how do I deal with my spouse or my child or my coworker or my brother or, or a friend who cares deeply and who thinks I'm now going to burn in hell and all of that. That seems to be, that's as heavy an issue for people to deal with as actually leaving the faith itself. I was talking to my ex-wife yesterday about when her and I went through a divorce. She, of course, you know, I, I was gay, but I, I wasn't ready to accept that. It took six more years before I would accept that. But she was at a place where she had accepted that and decided that she needed to move on. And when she did that in our community, she went to our pastor and said, this is a situation. I need to divorce him. But because she was the one initiating the divorce everybody took my side. And again, I wasn't ready to go yet, but they took my side and that left her really feeling abandoned. And she still holds a lot of that hurt to this day where she felt like that was our community. Those were our friends. And she was getting phone calls from people saying, you're out of the will of God. And why are you doing this to your family? And why are you not listening to God? And there was a lot of pain that she carries with her. And I know that when people leave their communities, and have no place to go or feel like they have no place to go, they carry a lot of that with them. How can recovering from religion help them in those relationships and get perspective on those relationships? I think one of the things that has happened almost, we didn't design it this way. Uh, we put this community idea together, just thinking it'd be another way to support people. And what we found almost to our surprise, at least I'm surprised, at how much the community people, the, just the normal Jane and Joes coming in, support each other with no interaction from us whatsoever. And I would dare say that that has become almost as important as any other function we have, is the peer support that comes just from other people who are going through I agree. And Daryl, there's so much value. What what we see in the community, there's so much value. We all know, or the four of us on this on this podcast know the value of talk therapy. We know the value of articulating one's position because it allows you to wrap your own head around it. And what I see happening in our community is people are able I, I, the word that I'm coming up with is to practice. They're able to practice and get their ideas together and get it out and stumble through. So much of this is um, trying to figure out, okay, well, it 
don't believe this, but what do I believe? And how am I going to come out? And how am I going to have a life? And what am I going to do with this? And inside this community, they get to bounce ideas off of one another. And, and they get so much support and encouragement. And they follow each other's lives. And, and while I understand that online relationships lack a dimension that our real-life relationships do. There's so much value in them getting to begin the process in a safe environment where they can start to talk about it. They don't have to worry about being judged if they, that sometimes they come to the conclusion right on the spot, you know, right here, this is the first time I'm typing these words. I don't believe this anymore. And to give them the space and the opportunity to get through that and get it out and practice that and and do that in the presence of other folks who support them then gives them the strength and the confidence then as they enter into their real life and they're faced with this same thing. They're going to come to this. They're, they're going to have a moment where they share with people that they care deeply about in their lives that this is what they believe now. And that I see is a step in the process for how one goes about recovering from religion. There's another component to this that I think is fascinating. We started this off early on, and we we made sub-channels, sub-channels for Catholics and for Mormons and Seventh-day Adventists and Jehovah's Witnesses. And we expected that people come in, because each of those groups kind of have their own language. We would expect people to come in, and all the Seventh-day Adventists to talk to each other, and then all the Catholics to talk to each other. And to some degree, that it's happened that way. But by far, the, the most productive discussions we're seeing are people who are from different branches or totally different, even Muslims coming in. And they're comparing notes, and the Seventh-day Adventist is talking to the Mormon, and the Mormon's talking to the Baptist, the Baptist to the Muslim. And what they discover, and you can just see it as they go through their interactions, is all religions do the same thing to you. And I think that alone helps a lot of our, of our clients wrap their heads around what was done to them because it's universal. And I think something Gail said about telling your story, getting used to you know, practicing. I, before I started working, volunteering with this organization, I worked with a online group, a large online group of people who had been hurt and damaged by the church. And many people would just come in and they would just kind of observe. We knew they were there. They would ask questions. But then as they heard other people tell their story and recognize the similarities and recognize, oh, I understand that. And then they would begin to say things. And as they would say it, the confidence could grow. So there is a power in saying it, even if you're in this community to start off with, just hearing yourself and when I when, when you when say it, by say it, I mean type it, as, as Gail was saying, just being able to articulate it the first time, there's power in that. I'm so glad that you mentioned that, Bill, and I'll throw in a little teeny tiny commercial. We also have a blog. Our blog is hosted at Patheos, and it's called X Communications, and it's a collection of exactly that. It's These are short essays, but they give folks the opportunity to articulate and to lay out their experience and share their experience with others. And so that's another way, while that's an outward facing piece of recovering from religion, it's also therapeutic in the sense that the folks that have come through here, if that's a part of your process and if that will help you, and if that is a way for you to get your thoughts together on a piece of paper, we encourage folks to do that. They can submit them. It's easy to do all the the instructions for that are located at the blog tab on the website. So certainly pursue that if that's something that, that someone who's listening thinks might be helpful. 
I think I think that's an important part of everything we do is letting people tell their story. And that's why we have the local groups. We've got 20 active local groups and growing. So people can show up at a group in Tulsa, Oklahoma or uh, you know, or Atlanta, Georgia and and tell their story face to face with a trained facilitator right there in their midst and and Bill, you're right. It's cathartic. It's that's what I experienced the very first time I held a meeting. So did I. I mean, when I was first beginning to to leave my evangelical fundamental background, I didn't want to tell anybody. I didn't. And I saw what Gail talked about being ostracized. Uh, I saw the I got the notes and the emails from people. I, I think it was because I had been a pastor and had been a very successful pastor. I got the emails from people who wanted to bring me back into the faith or wanting to correct me or just wanting to scream at me. So I think telling it for the first time and then little by little being able to be confident with it was very healing for me. I agree. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit more, Daryl, about the meetup groups that are on the ground? You said you have about 20. Are those all in the U.S.? Are they international? Uh, Gosh, Gail, help me out if I'm wrong. We used to have one in London. But we're pretty international in a lot of ways. We get well, on our chat line. We're getting chats from Saudi Arabia and Pakistan, Australia, New Zealand. You name it, we've probably gotten a chat from some some country. But our local group are largely in the United States, just because that's where we seem to be getting the volunteers. We need a dedicated volunteer in a given area before we can start a group. So, for example, we've had a really long-standing group run by. One of our longest volunteers, Mendisa, down in Atlanta, and another longstanding one in Toledo, Ohio, and another one in Springfield, Missouri. And our group leader, Rhonda Dorley, is in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and she's been running one for, what, about five years, Gail? Sure. And we provide for that for that dedicated volunteer, we provide training. This is this is purely peer support. So you don't have to have any kind of a special educational background in it in order to be able to lead these groups. Sometimes and these groups are autonomous. They they maybe they meet once a month, maybe they meet once a week. We encourage them to meet in a public place, um, like a library or some kind of a conference room, and it's a peer support session and we're able to talk those things through. And that gives yet another avenue for folks to be able to come to to be able to begin or continue the process of unpacking that baggage that accompanies sometimes leaving leaving one's religion. So our support groups, as Daryl said, you know, he used the word 20 and growing. All we need is one point person in each community. We, recovering from religion, underwrites the cost of the meetup site. We do that through the donations of folks who share our vision and share our passion for helping people in need. So we we are able to underwrite that cost. So the group leader simply goes through our training. We set up the meetup group. They find a place to meet and they move forward as they wish to do. And as Daryl said, some of them have been going for years. And some of our clients Sometimes they come for a long period of time. Sometimes they come for one or two meetings. That's perfectly fine. Whatever space and time you need to have some kind of support for this journey, that sometimes arduous journey through which you're traveling, that's what our support groups do. It's one more avenue that we can provide. Recovering from religion 
we ask ourselves the question, what can we do to help? And every time an idea occurs to us or we have a thought about, oh, wow, maybe we could do and fill in the blank. And from Daryl's germ of the idea in 2009, 10 years ago to now, all of our programs and all of our efforts have been toward answering that question, how can we help? And, and one of the things that I was fascinated with when I came to work with you guys is the entire organization is volunteer run. I mean, Gail, you are executive director and you're a volunteer. So how would somebody get involved if they think, oh, this sounds good. I want to help or I want to do something. Talk about how a person can volunteer and, what, and what's available as volunteers. Sure. Thank you for setting that up, Phil. That's such a great question. And it's such a simple process. Recoveringfromreligion.org, of course, is the website, and there's the volunteer tab. It won't surprise listeners to know that there is a process for volunteering. We're, we're careful about that. We have a deep affection for our clients, and we want to protect their experience. So when we bring a volunteer in, there is a process. There's a there's an interview, there's a, an application form, and obviously there's training. So while we, we encourage everybody to go through the process, be patient with us and understand why it takes sometimes more than just one day for us to get through the volunteer process because we take seriously our responsibility to our clients. But when you do decide to join the organization as a volunteer, the front-facing opportunity Opportunities for volunteering are the support group leaders and the helpline agents and the chat agents. We have places for everybody with that. There's plenty of room for help for there. But if you've got a special skill set and you feel like, well, I don't know that I can take a call, I don't know I can take a chat, welcome. We would love to put you to work somewhere. And, and our covenant, our promise to you is if you want to come join the organization and you have time and effort and talent to give, we will take it. We will find a place to plug you in so that you can feel productive. We are so grateful for all of our volunteers. They, you know, they give up their time. As, as Bill mentioned earlier, we are a 24-hour day chat line and helpline. And so we cross every time zone. And so it doesn't matter when you have time to give, we can find a time when we can find a place for you to, for you to help us out. And we are grateful to our volunteers. And this is a perfect time to point out that we are still looking for a producer for our podcast, as well as an engineer. I was about about to bring that up, Tim. (laughs) Just throwing it out there. (laughs) Our podcast would love to have a producer. We really would. Yeah, we really would. Also, I want, to, I want to mention that Recovering from Religion is a 501c3. So whatever you give is tax deductible. Just keep that in mind. So if, if you can't volunteer, but you still want to support it, then of course, we'll gladly take your money and, and keep the keep the project going. Awesome. Do we have time to talk just briefly about the Secular Therapy Project? Sure. Because yeah. you are the president. We bow to you. <laughs> I get real suspicious when people do that. <laughs> I figure the coup happens next, right? <laughs> <laughs> Not from us. We have words to learn. The S- Secular Therapy Project is just another part of all that we do at Recovering from Religion, but it's, it, it doesn't quite follow some of the other programs in that it's, a, it's professional support as opposed to volunteer support in so many other ways. But we uh, we started this back in 2012, registering secular therapists uh, for mental health services. And these are secular therapists that are in private practice. They're licensed, and uh, we have vetted them. We have a director and assistant director, Dr. Kayla Black and Samantha Carlton, that run that program. 
I started in 2012. I handed it, handed it over to Dr. Lack in uh, 2015, I believe it was. And their job is to find therapists who use evidence-based methods in their private practice. And it's really hard. If you're if you just go on the online and Google it and try to find a therapist in your town that's secular, you won't find one because they cannot advertise. They don't advertise. Uh, it would be dangerous to advertise that you're a, a secular therapist in many communities. In Alabama, imagine if somebody came out and said, I'm a secular therapist. What do you think would happen there, Bill? <laughs> well, I think that having grown up there, there would be boycotts and pickets. There probably would, and hopefully they wouldn't get their house bombed or anything. But well, that, and that's true too. I was I, I was actually living in Birmingham when when a lot of that the bombings and those things were going on back in the '60s. So right. uh, I don't have a lot of confidence in how people respond to such things that go against the Southern religious culture. Yeah. Jerry Falwell spent his entire career vilifying the word secular. It's very difficult for religious people or anybody associated with it to see secular people as having morals or anything to offer their community. Exactly. We we talked about the difference in somebody who worked in ministry and those who had a secular job. And we talked about Christian music and secular music. It was always this dichotomy of the holy and the not so holy. Well, the problem that I noticed back in 2012 when I started this was actually I noticed earlier than that, how many Christian counselors there are out there and religious counselors. And I was getting complaints from people who knew I was a psychologist. They'd come to me and say, I can't find a psychologist that doesn't send me back to church or tell me that I'm, I'm depressed because I'm an atheist kind of stuff. And that was just over and over again. I was hearing this. And then I said, well, let me help you find a therapist who can can use evidence-based methods. And, and I couldn't find one. I would spend hours looking and I couldn't find those therapists. I knew they were out there, but they don't advertise that way. So that's why we started the Psychotherapy Project. And it is like a match.com. Kind of, it's like a dating site in that we we protect the anonymity of the therapist and we protect the anonymity of the client, but you can find out about each other and uh, find out if their specialty matches what you're looking for. And then you can make an appointment through our system and it's all free. We don't charge anything. Our donors make this possible. We've now got about 380 therapists that we've registered and we've got over 13,000 clients that have registered to look for secular therapists. And that's both of those numbers are growing every every week. We want it to be a much bigger, of course, but right now you don't have to worry about a secular therapist in our database sending you back to church or judging you because you don't believe in Jesus anymore. Since this is the first podcast of the new year, let me ask Gail and Daryl, if you were making a New Year's resolution for our organization, what would your New Year's resolution be for recovering from religion? Oh, my goodness, that's a loaded one. And I probably should have given some thought, knowing that this is the first podcast of the year, I should have expected that question. I thought you were going to ask me if I made resolutions, and I had an answer for that one, which is no, <laughs> well, you I can don't. do that one I, if I you would prefer. <laughs> 
I raised four children and, and it became my habit to do resolutions in September every year because that's when everybody promoted up to a new school and we had a new schedule. And so my resolutions always wrapped around the school year. And so January resolutions are not a thing that I've always done. But if I if if I did, if I did make resolutions and my resolution for recovering from religion, I'm going to um, I'm going to tip my hand just a tiny little bit and tell you that we have a big, big, big announcement coming up with a project that Recovering from Religion is doing in conjunction with our 10th year. And it is different than anything that we've done. And it's different than anything that's been done in the broader secular universe and secular community. And so while it's not so much a resolution, I want to drop that little piece of information and tell everybody, be watching the website, be watching our social media, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter so that you can be the first to hear in the next this is the first of January. In the next two or three weeks, you're going to be hearing a big announcement about a tremendous project and opportunity that we have coming up. So I'm going to use my answer to drop that little piece of secret out there for everybody to be <laughs> ready listening and watching for our big surprise. Well, as someone has have a, having work, have worked for 30 years in public relations and communications, I can tell you that a teaser for me is just as good as a resolution. Awesome. Well, then you keep your eyes and ears open. <laughs> Well, I'll just simply second what Gail said. So there you go. Right, come on, Dale. You had a little bit more time to think. <laughs> well, that was what I was going to say. We have a huge announcement. And I'm not going to tell you anything. So, as you can see, uh, we're really, really excited about this idea and what, what we're putting together. And the board has just gone nuts about it. They're just, I can't believe how much time some of our board members are spending on this. Be watching. Okay. Gail, if you can tell people how they can find out about more information, what the resources are, what the services are, if you can, we've given the website address, but I want you to do it one more time. Sure. The website is recoveringfromreligion.org. It's very simple to get there. It's very user-friendly. We have the highest quality tech people working with us across the top. It will say volunteer. It will say donate. It will say blog. It will say podcast. And importantly, it will also say resources. Our telephone number is 184-I-DOUBT-IT. Spelled out just like that, 184, I doubt it, for folks who would like to call in and speak with a trained agent about whatever's troubling you in your journey. Then on the website, recoveringfromreligion.org, you'll see a little green chat bubble. Click on that chat bubble. That's on every page of our website to begin a conversation with a trained chat agent who can help you with whatever questions that you are having. And if you, as I said, if you'll like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, you'll be, um, or you can sign up for our newsletter also at the website. So there's lots of ways to find us and then don't ever miss a podcast. Yes. And I know that Daryl mentioned that he's written a couple of books. His bio, is on the website under about and then under board members you can find Daryl and his books but Daryl do you have a website they can go directly to no no, no. just, just okay. my books and uh, Amazon okay okay sex and God I appreciate hearing you two today and learning uh, I've, I've had a chance to talk to Gail uh, this is my first time to kind of have a conversation with Daryl other than than reading about him. So it's been very special for me to spend this uh, first week of the new year with you guys. Well, thanks. As well. As well. Happy New well, Year. Thank you. Happy New Happy Year to you guys as well. And you too, Tim. You too, Bill. Thanks. Thank you, guys. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Bye-bye. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of the Recovering from Religion podcast. If you have questions for either of us or suggestions for future topics, you can email us at podcast at recoveringfromreligion.org. If you think you'd like to be one of our guests, we have a form on the podcast page of the Recovering from Religion website. We'd love to hear from you.